0: Tell me a great story, Paul. All right, so uh, first base- of all, this, Baseball I want to let everybody know this is the first story I have ever told underneath a wildebeest. <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> that's what's above me. Um, Sean McVay, who's from here, um, coach of the Rams, Van Jefferson catches touchdown pass. Van Jefferson comes running over to the line, grabs him. And he goes, hey, hey. He goes, way to go, great job. He's like, man, and he goes, I love you. And it's kind of like, that's unusual. Jefferson runs over, turns around, runs back to Coach Buffet and gives him a hug. He goes, hey coach, I just want to tell you. He goes, uh, thanks for believing in me. Yeah, real quick. That's cool. That's cool. That's what brings out the best in a person, in my opinion, is someone believing in you.
1: You can, say everything, out, yeah. you can bring out,
0: you can bring out, better qualities in somebody by screaming at them you can make them have the fear of failure you can curse them out and you make that guy want to prove you wrong and you have this tension and you can get what you want through fear but believing in somebody is the best and I responded personally to that so it's 2002 I've got four or five years in the big leagues and I've had labrum surgery on my shoulder, and my arm squeaks like a door. I got four tacks in there, and I'm like, I'm "I'm (laughs) never going to pitch again. And if I do, it's going to be bad. I start out with wiffle balls, then I start out with tennis balls. And then I'm in spring training with the Kansas City Royals, and I'm trying to make the team, and it's coming out 80, 81 miles an hour on my fastball. Today, that fastball doesn't get you on a high school team. 2002, a little different, but still well, well, well below average. So I got to do something. So I hop the fence in spring training. I start praying on the side mound. And I'm like, you know, I always wish God told me what to do. But I've never heard him audibly, you know. He never says, bird, here's what you need to do. (laughs) Stay back longer, drop the left hip early and fight. You know, like that never happens. But I just said, hey, if I have any, you know, um, choice in this at all, I'd like to stay in baseball, you know. And um, so I was like, that's it. You know, I'm waiting for this. And I said, but, you know, I always want what you want. But I just just start start get on the mound and start lifting my leg like Warren Spahn, you know, the high leg kick, which you can't do anymore because guys will steal. But I start doing it. And I uh, start swinging my arms and doing a bunch of, like, goofy stuff. And I start bending over at the waist and kind of throwing it from here and here and doing just some goofy stuff. I'm in sandals and a T-shirt. I fall down, grounds screw comes over, like, can we help you, sir? I'm like, hey, I'm actually a player. They're like, player? <laughs> they're like, you look like some crazy nut job fan on the field. I'm like, no, I'm all right. I'm working some things out. And they're like – Man, this dude's got no chance to make the team. Like, this guy is struggling. There's no way he's a professional athlete. We're going to call the police shortly. So I, uh, you know, took it into the locker room, and the next day I'm throwing pitcher's batting practice.
1: Pitcher's batting. Yeah,
0: so this is where the pitcher gets to work on stuff, and he can tell you what's coming. Like Bunny? Well, yeah. (laughs) You're pitching to the hitters, but, it's you know, the hitters are getting, you know, their work in but you're working on stuff you need to work on. So if you need to throw 5 changeups in a row, you're gonna throw five change-ups in a row. So I'm like, you know, I start swinging my arms and doing the stuff I did the day before. Well, guys start laughing at me behind the cage. And you know, I'm already throwing 80, 81, trying to make a major league team. And people are laughing at you. You know what I'm saying? It's pretty and low. That's pretty low. And, and your arm's squeaking. And it's just like, man, But because I started doing some of those things all of a sudden now I'm throwing fastballs and they're popping them up and I'm like hmm then I'm telling them what's coming and they're grounding out and now everybody's quiet hmm I was like maybe I got something here Carlos Beltran's in the group pops up a couple fastballs and now it's dead quiet I finish and I walk off the side of the field and George Brett, who was behind the cage watching, comes around because they got to make a decision on me whether to release me or put me in the rotation. And George Brett comes over and he says, uh, hey Birdie, Beltran steps in front of him, says, I just want to tell you, because I don't know if you're messing around I couldn't see the ball he goes keep doing what you're doing and if Carlos Beltran can't see a fastball I'm on to something George Brett then says get out of (laughs) here and he goes I gotta tell you something he goes I would have hated facing you and I said you're George Brett like have you checked your numbers lately and you're left handed. You would have loved facing me. You know, get out of here, Hall of Famer. You know, and he goes, no, I'm serious. He goes, you look at me. He goes, I loved guys that threw 95 straight and hard. he goes, I rocked those guys all day long off the wall because they didn't know how to pitch. He goes, you know how to pitch. He goes, you cut it, you sink it, a little of this, a little of this. He goes, I'd have been so frustrated against you. He goes, keep doing what you're doing. He goes, you're going to be fine. And, man, I grew three inches walking from the line to the dugout because George Brett. So
1: gave that sometimes
0: God speaks through a burning bush. Sometimes he speaks unaudibly in the silence. Sometimes he speaks through George Brett. And he believed in me. Like Sean McVeigh and Jefferson, he believed in me. And I won 17 games that year resurrected my career, and that which became my biggest weakness, a slow subpar fastball, became my biggest strength because it caused me to have to get creative. So if you're asking me what makes a good leader, there's many qualities as you know, but one of them is the ability to be creative. And so in 2007, they were knocking down spring training boardwalk and baseball. I'm playing for the Indians now in Winter Haven, just a few hours up north. And I get in my car and I go down and I grab some sand and I put it in a jar from the mound where I discovered my wind-up through praying. And now that jar of sand sits in my office up on the shelf. And it's a reminder, think outside the box, be creative, and God can do anything through you. Man, that's legit. That's
1: awesome. What That's a what great story. I'm here oh with Paul Byrd. I mean, I don't know what all to say about Paul except first of all, he's a great guy. He's a great friend. Connor wanted to come with us on this podcast. He's got some questions he wants to ask uh Paul and they've been they've been in a group together and so they've gotten to know each other pretty well. Paul's been great. He's been mentoring Connor on a lot of stuff and uh but anyway, so Paul Byrd, so Here's a guy that went to the All-Star game. Yes. Got picked as an All-Star playing baseball. He uh, he's right now, you know, he's a Braves announcer for Bally Sports and so he has great commentaries. One of my favorite ones to watch and he has great he you know, he gives you great insight because he's been there and so we want to talk about baseball stuff, especially since the Braves just won the World Series, and he was there for that. We want to know, you know, what he thinks about that. Don't I got my out. pearls on to kind of celebrate, <laughs> and uh, and then we're going to talk about some stuff like, you know, uh, how is sports and business similar from the standpoint of how you think and you know when things are going. And then I got a lot of goofy uh, baseball questions for him too. So we're going to get this thing started. So thanks for thanks for coming. Thanks for being here, Paul. Yes. Thanks for being here, Connor. And um, so. Did you get drafted out of high school? I did. But you didn't go then? I didn't go. So all right, so there's a lot of kids that have been in that situation. You went to LSU.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? Which got you into college world series. Yes. So was that the right decision?
0: I think so. So I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Right. Now, when you're from Louisville, you say Louisville. Louisville. Not, some of you may not know. So I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and I grew up um <laughs> You know, throwing rocks on my train tracks and, you know.
1: Not stealing bourbon? No,
0: man. I put up the bottles on the train tracks, throwing rocks. My dad would catch for me. I always loved baseball. I always loved pitching. And you have to love it. Like, you have to love it. So that was inside of me when I was born. And, um, yeah, so I grew up watching Tom Seaver, Johnny Bench, Dan Dreesen, Ken Griffey Sr., you know, the big red machine right across the river. So... George Foster in 77 hit a ton of home runs. I was one of the first 500 in the gate, so I got the George Foster black bat. I slept with it for two weeks, and my parents (laughs) are like, this kid is eating up with baseball. So it was a really tough decision when the Cincinnati Reds drafted me out of high school, and Gene Bennett sat in my living room, and he talked about Don Gullett getting his arm strong, throwing rocks at squirrels out in the hills in Kentucky, and I was like, I throw rocks at bottles on train tracks. So yeah, I know what that's like. That's cool. It was really cool cool. and I was like, you know, um this is really, really tough decision. And um
1: I wrestled with it all summer. And uh Was that too much stress for a kid your age, you think, at the time?
0: Um that's a lot. That's a lot that's a big life decision. You make these little decisions. And you have to do it like that, and it affects the course of the rest of your life. It's crazy. Such that asking my wife, Kim Yip, out on a date, and she said no. And I said, I'm not taking no for an answer. So 15 minutes later, I talked her into one date, and we've been together ever since. So I had a little decision decision. after 15 minutes. Do I take no for an answer? (laughs) Um, I don't want to come across as a stalker, but I didn't want to take no for an answer either. So those little things, it's like, man, what do I want to do? Yeah, I would love baseball. But I really felt like in my heart, going to LSU, Skip Berkman was the coach. He was a coach of the USA. Was he recruiting you? He was. He's the best recruiter in the history of the world. He was like <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. He could talk you into swallowing your own tongue. He was that good of a motivational speaker. And just so when I went on my visits, I went to tons of places, and I was pretty hot commodity coming out of high school. Did um, you knew you were hot commodity?
1: I was because
0: I, I – you know, I had all of these visits and scouts
1: People were coming us. to see you, people talking about yeah, you. Yeah, because as a was junior. Was your head big?
0: It was. I was the stuff, and I thought I was. Uh, I threw, you know, 89 as a junior. And so I—that um, that's a big deal, you know, when you're, yeah. you're 16 years old, you're throwing 89, good curveball, and uh, this is pre-surgery, you know. Yeah. Before I was throwing 81 in the big leagues. Um, so I had I – had, Good fastball, good life, and um, so I was going so to recruit us in all these other schools, and people were really arrogant. They were like, now we're going to win without you if you come, but hope you get here. You know, like those were the kind of attitudes you got, and coaches were kind of like, we're doing you a favor, offering you a scholarship. So I walked in at LSU, and he just looked at me, and he goes, I can't win without you. And he goes I, Back to the same thing. He goes, I need you here because we've done our research I've talked to the scouts he goes you're gonna be in my weekend rotation and he goes I need you to carry the line carry the lineage hold the rope you're next on deck in this program of greatness and he goes we need you here and he goes when you come here you're gonna learn how to pitch and instead of being in God knows where America in A-ball on school buses trying to figure it out and all this. He goes, you're going to be here in a premier program pitching in front of, you know, five, ten thousand 10,000 every night. You know, every time you take the mound, you're going to be pitching in front of those people. Tons of scouts going crazy. And you're going to go to a school that's going to give you a pitching education. And I'm like, man, this guy wants me. Like, he believes in me. Walk in the locker room. There's a bird jersey hanging from one of the lockers. <laughs> I love it. Done. Walk out to the field. LSU welcomes Paul Bird. They take infield. I walk out on the field. Everybody finishes taking infield. They come on over and they surround me and they're like giving me five. So I committed that night. My parents were like, yeah. "What did you do? We didn't yeah. even talk about it. We didn't even miss that."
1: You're like, "I'm here.
0: I know. And he goes, "Well, you just gave him a verbal offer. You can, you know, you can, you haven't even taken because I had like Auburn and different schools left Texas um, uh, that were I still hadn't taken my visits to. And here I committed, and I said I need to honor my word. I'm going to LSU. So we went to the World Series every year. We won a national championship. My junior year, I found my faith at LSU. I met my bride at LSU. We're still together. She says she still likes me. She's moved us 56 times in pro ball, and it's been quite an adventure and a journey. Split-second decisions change the rest of your life, so I made the now, right one.
1: Now, the, how, how, like if you take what you went through and you put it today, because you have a son that kind of went through that, yeah. right? What is that what separates great college programs are those coaches able to come in and make those kids feel like hey we need you we want you is that what a Sabin or a Kirby Smart's doing better than the next guy? I mean what's your what's your yeah. observation of that? It's hard for a coach to check every single box. They're
0: the best speaker, they're the best in-game strategist, they're the best recruiter. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. They're the best at motivating someone to go to class when they don't want to go. Like, there's all these things, and it's hard for a coach to check every single box, but I think you have to check some of the most important boxes, and one of those boxes is dealing with people. You have to be able to deal with people and bring the best out in that person and instinctively know. I mean, how many math classes did you have growing up? How many, I don't know, foreign language or science classes? Geometry? How many you know, social studies classes mm-hmm. that you have. And I'm going a lot of time. I mean, I logged eight years of French before I even got to high school. <laughs> I've never used French. But I've never had a class that's entitled titled dealing with people. Right, right. And one of the most important skills I think you learn as you go through school and adventures is how to deal with people. coaches that don't like you, teachers that don't like you, somebody that does believe in you, somebody... And so you have to, the best coaches that I played for, they could adapt to the person. They knew what button to push here, what button to push here, what button to push here. If you don't know how to do that and you're just going to beat this guy and everybody has to adjust to you or have to get out, you may be a good
2: coach, but you won't be the greatest. Well, I think you're good at that. I think you're really good at adapting to people. You are too. Well, I mean, is that something you think you can? Grow in, or is that something you think you just naturally are born with? What do you, the ability to sort of have emotion, social? No, I mean, I mean, that's
0: a that's a good question. I certainly wasn't
2: born with it. I had
0: the privilege of seeing good coaches and learning from them. And um, I think another thing is, you don't want a coach that's fake. Right. You want authentic. Even if it's negative news. Even I love, and I say, you know, sometimes like negative news can be the best positive news. I had a guy, Johnny Goro, changed my career too. Uh, He had played in the big leagues and he was my coach. And I said, what do I need to do when I get to the big leagues? He goes, you'll never get anybody out. I go, what do you mean? You know, what do you mean? He goes, you don't have enough movement on your fastball. He goes, you're gonna have to throw 98 or you're gonna have to sink it and cut it and this and that. And I was like, man, negative news. I don't know, kind of positive news. And so I changed my game too early on, where I didn't I don't know if I probably count on, you know, maybe twenty forcing fastballs. I threw my whole career. Minor leagues too. Because I didn't have a great explosive fastball. And so I learned how to, you know, cut it and sink it. So, you know, that's that is a big deal as an athlete. Like you have to be willing to adapt. You have to be willing to change. Same thing for coaches. Brian Snicker went through that this year. Um, he's done through that the last ten years. And what I mean by that is the game is changing. Mm-hmm. You know, in my generation, you couldn't hit a home run, stand and look at it, flip the bat. So you have to be able to adapt. <laughs> and change. Yeah, you have to be able to adapt and change. Um, And this is a really, really, really big box. This goes back to believing in someone, caring for someone. If you loved me, and you believed in me, and you cared for me, you could yell at me, or scream at me, or anything you wanted. Right.
1: Because I knew
0: where that source, I knew where that was coming from, and you were wanting the best out of me. If you didn't like me, and you didn't want me on the team for whatever reason, and you yelled and screamed, and put me down, and were negative, that, that made me angry and I may perform out I'll show this guy but also I was like I can't wait to get out of here.
1: Yeah, I don't want to be here. Yeah, but when you when you when you're playing professional sports, though, I mean there's so much individual stuff that you think about that I need my numbers good, and I need to do so much, so much so I can sign my contract and keep playing. But then you got the team aspect of it. So how does how do you as an individual get yourself coached. I mean, especially if you're in a situation where you're not getting what you need from the coaches there on the team. Can I mean, you got to do a lot of self-talk, uh, don't you? I mean, is there a lot of that going on if you're a professional athlete or are you, you know, like I remember you know, it seems like Chipper would call his dad when he wasn't working on his swing and that was the guy he kind of went yeah. to. I mean, does everybody have their go-to guy when they're not, things aren't going right or they're trying to get better? I mean, it just seems like you don't really have – it's not like it's a family mm-hmm. situation. If it is, it's a short-term family situation because you don't know if you're going to be there next year or, the, or two years from now. How, how, do, how do the guys deal with
0: that? So there's a couple questions in there if I understand you correctly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, wait, hold on. What five or six? Uh, first one, baseball is an individual game okay. played within a team concept. Ground ball goes shortstop. All eyes on the shortstop to catch the ball, throw it first. First baseman's got to catch it before the guy gets there. How fast does he run? Well, all the guys on the bench can't run for him. So it is an individual game played within a team concept. And selfish players, and they're certainly out there, right, are not the right ones to uh,
1: bring on your team. Bring out the best in your team.
0: Do mm. you still win? Everybody else players? can smell
1: that in the clubhouse.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You and you, when you're with guys, ten hours a day. Yeah, a coach can't fake it. If he don't care about you, a player can't fake it if he's selfish. Um, so, as long as you do what you need to do to get ready and to prepare for that one-on-one situation, um, that's helping the team. Okay. You know, but yes, if you are a team player. And you bunt, or you, which is a lost art now. And you, you know, if it's if it's uh, a tie game, and there's a guy on second with nobody out, I know immediately if the player is selfish by his approach at the plate. Immediately, I know if he's trying to move the guy to third, or if he's trying to hit a two-run homer. You know, what I'm saying the chances of moving someone to third are far greater if you concentrate on moving him to third than if you try to leave the park, because 30 home runs is great, so 30 times a year, one of the best in the game is gonna hit a home run. But I can walk up to the plate, you know, now at my age, I think, (laughs) and move a guy over. So you see these things in the way somebody approaches the way they swing. So if a guy drops his back leg, sinks in, and goes, you know, I know he's not trying to move the runner to third base. And so I say that guy's selfish. That's the lesson Alex Anthopoulos has learned over the last 10 years. When I asked him, and I'm, you know, my job as a broadcaster is to bring out stuff that I can't get on a computer. And I say, hey, you always talk about not just getting good players, but the right good Play. players. Where did you learn that? And he said, from failing. And I said, tell me more. And he said, I've been in the playoffs with Toronto and other teams, and I watch, and he goes, if you get the wrong guys, you may get there, but you won't win at all because you won't do the little things that it takes, the unselfishness where team comes first. And that name on the front of your jersey is more important than the name on the back. And I want those guys in the locker room that are going to make that team a better
1: better team. And so I did that. So let's talk about that, Lee. What was the brilliance behind what he did to put the Braves in the World Series? There's a reason you're wearing pearls.
0: (laughs) You're a tough guy with a beard. You know what I'm saying? We're in this man cave that cannot get any more masculine. And you're wearing pearls because, you know, one of the guys he went and got was Jock Peterson, who when he came to the team, he walked in and he said, what? This is the team that almost beat us last year? This team is sad. This team is down. Well, why were they down?
2: Because the they were hanging
0: around 500. Yeah. And you're supposed to be, you know, they can't get above 500. They set a record for wins and losses at 17 win, loss, win, loss, win, loss. It started to become comical. And they were stuck in mud. And so there's this frustration like, hey, man, it's not April anymore. We're in July. We got to get going. And it there was this feeling of being snake bit and then so-and-so gets hurt and then so-and-so gets hurt. And then, you know, we would score eight runs and give up nine right. and you know, we would score two runs and give up three. And it was like, you just kind of stuck. And there's this feeling of, Hey guys, it ain't our year. You know, there's just that, that feeling.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, so he got guys over there They're like, man, knock it off. Vote came in. You're not going to see his name leading the headline. Stephen Boat, backup catcher. Hilarious. One it should be on SNL with some of his imitations. <laughs> Brings life to that locker room, along with a guy wearing pearls who is a grown man, just, you know, making
1: sure. That what were they doing? What were they doing to bring the Making life? sure
0: that you have fun at the game of baseball. Steve, I told you I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, breaking lamps and on the train track. I can't wait to get to the big leagues. And you finally get to the big leagues and you're miserable? <laughs> you're having no fun playing a game? There's something intrinsically wrong about being able to do what you've always wanted to do as a little boy, and you're miserable. And so they came in the locker room and they started to change the culture, and they reminded them of having fun and how good they were.
2: Because they were a good team. How good they were, yes.
0: Yes. Adam Duvall, a difference maker in a different way. He's not going to get up and give a speech to the locker room and do an imitation like vote, but he's the silent assassin. He just goes about his business. He works hard. He's type one diabetes. You're like, man, I got no excuses about Adam balls doing it. He's got a thing on the side of his hip. That's injected into his body that makes sure his insulin is right. Type one diabetes. He's supposed to be tired. This dude's a warrior. Hmm. And now all of a sudden what, you know, Ron Washington. Out early, hitting ground balls to the guys, making sure because defense wins championships that those guys are ready. And so you had all these little parts and it just needed some tinkering and some additions of people coming in. And so then the next thing you know, you picked up Soler and you had Heredia, Guillermo Heredia from Cuba, who's not right in the head. Max Freed, (laughs) a base pitcher, pitcher, base winning hit and is running to first base and Guillermo Heredia runs onto the field before he touches first base. <laughs> with the like, swords. It's illegal. But who cares? Because we've never seen it. We're like, when in the history of the game has a guy with two pink swords run onto the field and beat the guy who hit the game when he hit two first base? His foot's, I'm like, are we going to review this? <laughs> like, you know, you got to touch bases. you got to touch home. And, like, you can't cross base runner. You know, like, there's these rules. But I don't think there's any rule in the MLB handbook for pink swords. Onto the field before a guy gets the first. Amazing. So what's really cool is Solaire came over and was hurt in Kansas City. Called my guys in Kansas City. What am I getting? What are we getting? He said, "Man, don't be confused. It's slow motor." I go, "Okay." Tell me more. They go, "Paul, a little bit of a little bit of sadness, little low level sadness. Works hard. Misses family in Cuba." Um, but if he's healthy, he's going to go to the post, and he's been really hot the last two weeks. So I think Alex picked him up because he's starting to turn around. And he goes, if he's right, they go, he's not going to hit 350. They go, but look out, look out, because anytime he comes up to the plate, he's deadly. Final game of the World Series. My gosh, I'm in Houston, center field. The crowd is like going nuts in Houston. They're screaming. We got a few... People chopping there. You can't even see or hear. It's a big moment, two on, and, you know, no score yet. And Solaire's up in that box, man. Foul's off, I don't know how many, four or five to the left side. And now the crowd's really screaming, really getting loud. Dusty Baker, top step. Come on, pitcher. I mean, this is just, it doesn't get any better. I'm in center field. You ready? Kelly Kroll says he's going to hit a home run. My partner, mm-hmm. you know, he's got the video. I go, okay start taking the video. there, BOOM! <laughs> <laughs> and let me just tell you something, I've seen a lot of games in Houston. There's, you know, left field, a little short, then you got some people, then you got a really high wall, then you got a train sitting on top of that wall. And normally if you hit one over that wall, you hit it really high, it's a loop shot, you know? <laughs> it's like that hanging punt that sticks up there forever, and like it's gonna make it over and then it gets over. His was like <laughs> it was like a rocket ship and no one had really seen that like I hadn't like how did he clear the wall like this and it went off into the darkness and all of a sudden everybody was quiet
1: <laughs> into the dark
0: and into the darkness. I turned to my partner and she's like ah, ah.
1: you're going crazy I'm like it.
0: yeah. it's over it's over I knew right then it was done it was over Yeah, when Max Free got his leg, stepped on, and he came back out on the mound like a warrior, like it's over. And there was a kid watching the game streets over behind left field that walked out of his apartment and walked out and goes, there's the ball. No way. (laughs) No way. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. um, a kid got it. Yeah. And um, so really, really cool assemblage of different parts of different functions, of different personalities, of people that were not selfish. I got off track, Heredia made Soler much more happy because he too was from Cuba.
1: I had a partner.
0: Had a buddy, and they could share in their pain and talk about things that a guy from America could not talk about. Mm. And the next thing you know, is smiling and there's some really, really cool moments that this team had that I thought was not only the best team at the end of the year, you know? And I I was, I don't, I'm not saying this in a braggadocious way, but we're broadcasting and everybody's talking about the Dodgers and we're playing the Dodgers. And I said, we won tonight because we're a better team. And we weren't in April, we weren't in July, and maybe we weren't even August or September better than the Dodgers. But at that moment in time, the Atlanta Braves were the best team in baseball, hands down. I don't care what the Giants' record was. I don't care what the Dodgers' record was. I don't care how many superstars Houston had. We peaked you at had the, the right time. You had the best team on the field at that moment. And so when you had those different parts functioning properly, and people knowing their role, um, that's why you saw them steamroll everybody in the playoffs. With some really cool moments, really cool personalities, fun guys to cover, good mm-hmm. interviews, sincere people—that they
2: were glad to be there.
0: Oh man, it was—it was awesome.
2: I'm so curious. I've always—I've always told you this. Anytime we meet, you tell some really good stories. <laughs> but I don't think it's the like the stories are awesome and they're obviously bring people in. But you had this ability to like get people to really listen to you when you talk. Mm. You feel me on that? I appreciate do that. Do you feel me on that? Yeah. What oh, like, yeah. well, you feel is passion for the stories telling. There's passion, but there's also sort of an art to it about the ability to tell a story. And we've talked about this in our group, about how important it is to be able to tell stories and articulate to things, because that's that's Huge. that's a massive thing. How do you feel like you've gotten so good at that? Is that something you just have practiced or like? The ability to tell a story just seems so, like, natural with you. I don't know if you practiced it or if it's well, something Well, first of all, new. I
0: appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, of and, course. And I receive that. Cool. I am passionate about story probably because that's how I learn. Um, I am more artistic than I am, and I have some analytical in me.
1: <laughs> but I, I, I learn
0: that way. I learn the why, and I seem to grasp a message that's communicated through story um, better than I do any other way, and um, I do like people, and I I love life, and I love what I learn through people and the things that happen to them, and I feel like, you know, similar to what Shakespeare said, we are all a main player in our story, and we get to write some of our story, and we get to, you know, decide which way to go in our story, And and I've enjoyed the journey and and lessons learned
2: through living and events. It's awesome. It's cool. Yeah. I totally agree. The why, you learn the why, and you're able to just reciprocate the
1: why once you hear it. Well, they say more people, you know, retain a story than they do the facts. about You know, I mean, you remember something by the story more so than you do if somebody put up a PowerPoint, right? Yeah. And, um... And, and there, in and marketing, that's that's what it's all about. It's like I, I went to this. Uh, I've been getting my whiskey sommelier certification, and part of that is you got two whiskeys there, and you really don't know the difference in those two whiskeys. Mm-hmm. But if I tell you a story about each one, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna go towards one right. because that story resonated with you better. And,
0: if I tell you, hey Steve, you could spend one minute with a person and change their life great. But if I tell you how George Brett changed my personal career, which changed my life in one minute, now I've given you life, oh. and an example of how that happened. And I feel like it's much more rich yeah. than if yeah. somebody just and it gives makes... you advice or throws something at you and tells you to do something. I learned the why and the how, and I got to experience how that happened. And I thought, oh,
1: but that, and that but it seems to me the lesson from that was that inspired you to go do that for other people. Absolutely. I mean, do you do you Absolutely. look for that opportunity to do that with somebody? Absolutely. Do you think that's your purpose? I, I won't lie to you. I'm not going to, because I don't feel like that.
0: that's a disservice to somebody. Right. Telling them they're really good at something and when they're not. not yeah. or, but I could say... You need to get better and here's how I think you will be better on camera or on the mound or whatever. Right. You know, I remember saying and I certainly had no part in Cliff Lee winning the Cy Young, but I was with the Indians and he was my catch partner and I was like, Do you know how good your curveball is? He's like, Yeah, I think I should start throwing that more and this and this is a guy who, you know, in two thousand seven was not good enough to make our postseason roster, and spent a lot of time in AAA. And in 2008, in spring training, he couldn't get anybody out. Another one of our pitchers, Jeremy Sowers, was going to take that fifth spot, and Sowers struggled a little bit. And next thing you know, they're like, "Well, I guess we'll just, you know, go with Cliff Lee." And he won the Cy Young. No way. <laughs> Yeah, and it is. So like songs uh, of
1: his curveball? No, he just – Oh, goes uh, – Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, he,
0: yeah, That's a better ending of the story, but I'm not going to lie. He won because he just started to believe. and, he started and himself. those strikes, he stopped walking. And that's guy, everything, you know, right? And he, he just did this and that and this and that. and um, So, you know, when you're talking about great leaders or great athletes or great people uh, who are mastering their profession, one of those things is not just that the coach believes in them –
1: but they believe in what they're doing. But is there a trigger for that? Like Brett maybe triggered you a little bit to believe more in yourself. Yeah. Because I think people go down a path and then sometimes they get a, a negative trigger and they go, okay, maybe I'm not as good as I think yeah. I think I am. Or a positive trigger, and it's 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 like, how do you know which one's going to show up? You know. And that was kind of my question a while ago. Is I'm out there and I'm I'm doing baseball. And I've got these coaches, but how do I continue to internally get better? Because they might not be helping me on that. They might be just adjusting me physically or my mechanics or something like that. But I'm trying to figure out how do these guys, because certain people are just able to stay on the top, you know, mm-hmm. can, can keep reinventing themselves mm-hmm. or, or, I don't know. Some I call guys it, don't need what the, what, what the guy
2: when your teammate needed, right, or... What um, Sean McVay told, what's the guy's name? Like a little bit They're of encouragement will take a long way. Some guys don't need that. Some, Some guys, guys are just kind of have that. Yeah, role. they have it in here do you, already.
1: Do you see that? Or you, you see where they? You see the ups and downs because you see them. You're closer.
0: So I can only rely on personal experience. Right. I've I've never met anyone that's at the top of their profession anything that didn't have someone that believed in them, someone that taught
1: them something. That they've stayed with. I call it a tape. It stayed with them. Yeah, like, you know,
0: uh, Greg Maddox was probably the best mentally of anybody that I played with as far as belief um, in himself and pitches and things like that. But, you know, if you listen to Greg Maddox Hall of Fame speech, he's praising his coaches from high school. Darren Bosley was a coach who was younger than him in San Diego for just a year, and he praised him for things that he learned When he's in his forties, from how to adapt and change from, and so there was there's there's always somebody. Yeah, I I think so. That's good.
1: That's what I was after.
0: Now, that person may have a somebody, but they don't want to listen to them.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Or they? You know, they already know it all, or you know, they don't have that motor or that engine where they they work hard. They're not a student. Yeah, and I don't know how to give somebody that. You know, or give somebody confidence, right you know that's a tough thing, but like I will say that your marinade or your culture or the things that happen to you certainly play a part in believing that you can do it
1: okay so let's so let's let's go with that. So where you are in your place in life right now, being around that team like you are, did you find opportunities to mentor some of those guys?
0: on the braves? Yeah,
1: no, years past,
0: yes. 2020. Changed everything. So our accessibility to the team. Yeah, because, you know, like, Melanson comes over. credible, you know, career closer. Now out with the Padres. And when he walked into that locker room, uh, he called me over right away and said, how did you throw your cutter? Because I had a good cutter. He has a good cutter. And he had a little blip on the radar where he lost his cutter, and so now he was so he's gathering information, so I wasn't mm, responsible for Mark Melanson and turning it around. He had already done <laughs> that, but for him still to learn more and desire yeah, 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 to want to know, I was like, well, I'm impressed by that, mm. you know um so there's certain little things I can say to somebody every now and then so those are some of my richest moments as a broadcaster to be able to. Still interact with players because I'm super passionate about baseball, and not just talking about it, but talking to a player about it.
2: And um, yeah, that's cool. I, I, sorry, I feel like um, I feel like today's narrative. Not even baseball. Baseball might be a different story, but even in business or any other kind of sport, I feel like it's such an like there's such a narrative about individual focus, and like you need to pump yourself up, and you need to get it yourself, and you need it's all individual. And I feel like that's not something that happens enough in today's world, and like people my age especially, it feels like it's so up to them only to mm. accomplish it, or else it's not worth much. They're
1: not seeking you know, out, or they're not
2: or, seeking advice. They're not yeah. understanding that it's a team effort. So it's cool to it's cool to hear you say that because I feel like a lot of people my age would maybe some feel like that would was the take, first time they heard that
1: or something take that away from this from this interview. Yeah. So all right, so what what happens when? All right, you get there and you sign this big old fat contract for five million dollars, or you play a while and you get this fat contract, and you got five million. You know, you sign a contract for five million. What happens next? Do they write you a check for five million dollars? <laughs> if your agent's well, really I... good, and you get a five
0: million dollar bonus. You get it all up front because of the time value of money and investing. That would be the way to get it, but. That doesn't happen. How matter. does
1: pay because work? Because the best
0: businessmen in the world who run the team understand that, <laughs> and they would rather pay you later, you know, and as late as possible. But you make money while you play every two weeks. So, you know, when you're in the minor leagues, um, you know, my son's double A with the Cubs and did all the math. He makes less than $4 an hour. <laughs> and then, so, I, when I play. But he I, loves it. Loves it. I mean, we don't want to be anywhere else. Loves it. Absolutely loves it. And that's, that's more important than money. Yeah. Way more important than money. But when you go from not, you know, I maxed out at $7,000 a year in AAA. And then all of a sudden you get to the big leagues. In the first two weeks you go, whoa.
1: That's real you know, that's
0: money. A game, yeah, it's a game changer. But you still it's not crazy, crazy money. You start right. paying off your aunts and your uncles and whoever else loaned <laughs> you money so you could survive in the minor leagues. And, um, you know, for me, uh, so first thing I did was my parents helped me out a little bit. We had a little deal. It's impossible to live off, you know. That's out. Yeah, it's impossible. Um, And so, and and, and what I mean by that is to eat right and to train properly and to, you know, it's really, it's hard. So it's, so my parents had helped me out a little bit. First thing you do is you pay them off. That was good. And then you start to have these kind of little goals. And then, you know, I signed um, my first really big check i mean was with the phillies and i went from making nothing to you know year after the all star game making a lot and it wasn't five million but you know i had signed for 1.9 and when that first two week check check came in it was like
1: but is that is that a check because we're in the mortgage business (laughs) yeah is that a check that that's based on the 1.9 for the whole year, and it's every two weeks. So it's divided by the year, or is it divided by the games or the season? It's or? every two weeks while you play. While you play. While you play. So it's a nine-month, really. You're playing – Is that start with spring training and go all the way to – It starts during the season. You make money in spring training. They
0: give you allowance and meal money and things like that, but the real, the real contract check. comes
1: in during those six months. So it's like season. six months – that you're getting every two weeks, you're getting, your getting a, a large check a that large you're not
0: used to getting. at, a, at a, I was 28, um, so, um, I'm sorry, I was 29, so, you know, I'm in my 20s getting a big check, and, and that's hard. Um, I want to say this. This is really, really important. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, West Coast um, counselor for many years, author, successful. Um, so he's sat with person after person after person. And he says, uh, late in his career, he said, for every person that I meet, you know, he goes, for every 10 people that I meet that can handle failure, you know, something bad going in their life and gritting and bouncing through it, we always hear, you know, that he goes, I've only seen one that can handle success. Really? And I was like, he's right. Because Does failure's it. hard. Success is even harder. Because. You give a kid a big check at 20 years old, yeah. and all of a sudden your family's like, hey, I got this investment. And you're like, hey. And you're like, what do you mean? Like, you don't love me. And it's like, you know, so I had, you know, a member that wanted me to pay off a $40,000 credit card bill for them real quick. And there was, like, a lot of stuff that starts happening. And then your family starts going, well, hey don't even care. You know, it's like you start to see these things play out. And, you know, um hmm. All of a sudden you're like man this is this is a heavy burden mm. and success changes people the big leagues changes people fame changes people having everybody want your autograph changes you having 40 to 50,000 people scream and get excited when you do something good can change you and you have to be able to handle success or you won't be the person That God created you to be on or off the field. Right. Because, you know, and and when I say that, we want to be confident, Mm -hmm. but we don't want to be arrogant and think that, you know, the world revolves around us and my team revolves around me. The name on the front of your jersey is bigger than the one on the back. That's true in your household as well when you get home. Right. And handling money makes you
1: more of what you are and exposes that. So what's your advice to those guys?
0: Get accountability. Get somebody to help you. Don't do just whatever, you know, and I'm okay. I go, man, I wish I could go back. I would have done this. Mm -hmm. We all do do that though, no matter where we are. Get advice from that guy. (laughs) Now, Now, when it's in your lap and you've never handled this before, Go get advice from somebody that was successful and somebody that had failed that had the same thing happen to them. You know, Shaquille O'Neal spent a million dollars like in the first day and he went and got a business manager. He said, I'm going to be broke, you know, and he goes, so I'm going to let somebody else manage me. So he's fine, but there's really, really sad when you have somebody, because most players did not grow up with money. There's a lesson in that as well. And all of a sudden... You're in your twenties, and a big check comes your way. Um, so surround yourself with people that you trust, that are wise, that um, you know can help you through that process.
1: Do most of them do that? Ooh. Most. That's
0: a tough word. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've seen a lot of really horrible stories, you know, and then I've I've seen some really, really good stories. So I I wouldn't be able to say
1: most, but I would just say. You know, we hear about the horrible ones. We don't hear about the surprises. Yeah, Yeah,
0: there's no surprises. But yeah, there's a lot of good success stories too, and there's people that are able to handle money and are able to handle fame and, um, you know, all the other successes that come with the glorification of that athlete. And there's a lot of great stories out there that people that are able to, you know, handle that. And...
1: So how do you handle autographs? How do you deal with that? When you're, when, you're, when, you're, when you're in the heat of it and everybody wants your autograph, how, how, how do most guys handle that? What's your advice on handling that? Be gracious. Be glad?
0: Be glad. Be gracious. Now, I can't sign an hour before each game. Right. Somehow, Cal Ripken did that. have no idea how he pulled it off. You'd be leaving on a bus from Baltimore, and there's a sea of people in the parking lot, and there's Cal Ripken. And he ain't leaving until two or three in the morning, till he signs every single autograph. I have no idea how he pulled that off. He did, but you know, most people, I would say, a little bit each day, a little bit before BP, a little bit before the game, a little bit after the game, and do you know you can't sign do that. some, but not yeah, nah, nah. yeah, and you know, there's somebody wants Dansby, somebody wants Riley, somebody wants Freddie, and just go, you know. And a lot of those guys are good at doing that. You know, some of my fun moments this year were watching Dansby and Riley sign right before the World
1: Series. What well, about Kid'll will,
0: kid will never forget that.
1: Never, never, never. So what where does that play then if you're if you're an athlete and, and your neighbor or your uncle or a friend needs you to sign a ball for somebody else or an event or whatever? Are most yeah. guys up for that or not? Yeah, I mean, especially family, everybody's
0: usually pretty gracious. You know, with signing and things like that. I think where it gets tough is you're five minutes away from taking the mound and somebody wants your autograph and they don't understand. You know, you're in the middle of a <laughs> you're, job. You're ready to walk out of the mound. Your game face is on. You're going over the reports. your your frame of mind you're like, okay, let's go over this again. I'm going to start out the first hitter like this. Let's go. All right, let's – I want to – Hey, wanna, hey, wanna, hey <laughs> bird. You know, and you're like, I can't right now. And you're just <laughs> hoping that that kid doesn't go by and go, Bird's a jerk. You know, yeah. you're hoping that his parents are able to explain something like that, but it's, uh, it's not. Really
1: right. how, how do you? How does a pitcher prepare uh, to pitch a game? How does that work today? Now You're going to go out there and you're going to pitch against X Y Z team, and you know pretty much who's in the lineup. How are they doing film, or, or what? What's the process for that?
0: So a little bit of everything, you know, and you've got to know yourself and know what you like the best. You know what sometimes you give a guy a bunch of numbers and he gets so caught up in his head on those numbers that he's thinking too much out on the mound.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't want to think out on the mound. Like, I want to react
1: and I want to go after the... You're going to feel the moment based on what I don't happen. want to be...
0: You know, like, if you're at the plate and you're like, okay, I got to get my back leg down, I got to get... You know, if you're thinking mechanics too much, I just want to think, how did he react and what's my next pitch? And, you know, you're going to know because you log information and you study, you're going to know if somebody... Can't hit the fastball in, or somebody struggles with breaking ball away, but that doesn't mean they can or can't versus you. So you start to log information, you get, start to get a feel. It's kind of an art form, this this dance of how to approach a hitter and how to get a guy out. Was he looking different in this situation his second at bat than his first? Little bit of that is lost today. The art of it, because it's how hard can I throw and spin rate right up, and so it's lost a little bit for me. I still love baseball. I love the new stuff. I like the old stuff you know as Dusty Baker wisely said I'm not old school I'm not new school I'm right school how do we bring it together and change the game for the better so but one of the things I really really liked was you know the chess match of how to get that hitter out what's the hitter doing what's the pitcher trying to do what's his arsenal what oh man just there's nothing better in a well-pitched game where I'm watching this guy in a big tense situation, 2-1, try to, you know, execute out on the mound. And what is the hitter doing? Man, oh. Versus a guy out there who's well, throwing I, one off how the back, throwing him there, He's just trying to <laughs> throw a strike, you know. And there's a place for that guy too. You know, there is a place right. for that guy too. But I enjoy, you know, when a, a good strategist who can execute his pitches. Is out on the mound and I'm trying to think along with him. That for me, man, there's no place I'd rather be.
1: So, I think about why don't more of these players throw more like, say, Maddox did, where it was it just seemed like it wasn't about the speed, right? You wouldn't get to the big leagues. Is that is that the problem? Yeah, Today, I mean, you would. There's a
0: you know you got to give them what they want. So it's that it's yeah. I mean the, you got I mean they want home runs and they want high you know and so. You know, I thought Theo Epstein had a really gracious comment because he's one of the guys that ushered in these new analytics. And I'm not against the new analytics. Again, I'm not old school, new school. I'm right school. I agree with Dusty. But he said, it can be kind of boring at times. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. We put the shift on. How hard can you throw up? Guys trying to go deep, hit a home run every single time. Okay, are we playing softball? Are we playing baseball? <laughs> and so the next thing you know, you start to say, okay, but I'm going to say... I'm not against the analytics. I'm not against what's come onto the scene. I thought the games were incredible right. this year. They're very fun to watch.
1: They were awesome.
0: But is there a place for the guy that comes in that goes, Rant, and it's 84 and goes like this? Yes. I was I watching so. Rob Friedman on Twitter today. He was showing a Maddox thing, and the ball went. Hmm? You can't do that when you throw 98. It's harder to make the ball move the harder you throw. So when you see a Trinan out there throwing a power sinker at 98, you go, wow, I have no idea how he mathematically does that. I don't know how his shoulder is still attached. I have no idea what he did, but it's (laughs) beautiful. And I would love to have had that. I never did. How is the hitter even fouling it off? So there's a lot of fun stuff to watch too in the midst of all this. But the game has changed. Talk about successful leaders adapting, and that's one of the things. I want to say this. You said, how does a guy get ready? Mm-hmm. you, know, you got to know yourself and what gets you ready and what studies. Is it video? Is it this? Is it mechanics? Do you just listen to, you know? You ready? Classical music and work on your breathing so that when you get out there and it gets crazy, you have the ability to calm yourself down when you breathe because the more oxygen you get, the smarter you are, the better decisions you make, the more relaxed you are. So when you watch and hear a movie like in Bull Durham where Nucle says, breathe through my eyelids. And it sounds so goofy and corny, and it is. What he really means, you know, is calm down, relax, don't be in a kind of like myself.
1: your LS, you could,
0: yeah, absolutely, <laughs> a little something like that. So, um, and then there's little things you learn that that you remind yourself of. I'll tell you something that was really big for me playing with Kansas City, along with changing my motion. Chris Carr was a team psychologist. He worked with the USA team. He gave me a book called Flow in Sports. The author, I can't spell, but it's pronounced Chuck Mahali. <laughs> and he took the common denominators of the best athletes in all sports. So the Bo Jacksons, the Bjorn Borgs, the, you know, tennis. Uh, Michael Jordan, one of the greatest thinking athletes ever. Maybe the best, you know and he took these common denominators are you ready for this put them in a book and one of those common denominators kind of changed my thinking on the mound and this was it the best athletes in the world saw challenges as enjoyable
1: Ooh, potential
0: threats as enjoyable they didn't Ooh, want to play that's a 10 big game. that's
1: big they didn't
0: want to play a 10 nothing game they wanted to play a 1 nothing game so beyond board tennis player Purposely got down in sets until McEnroe came on the scene and beat him because nobody could beat him So he had to have a challenge so he would get down in sets to try and come back and beat a guy So he's one of the greatest at coming back from being down uh, Michael Jordan Dominated basketball we've you know, hopefully all seen you know the, the video that came out on uh, on Netflix. Yeah Yeah, man unreal. So he started playing baseball. He hit three home runs of BP and beat uh, when he went out at Comiskey, and the next thing you know, they're like, man, you can't, you can't go back and play basketball. And he's like, okay, watch.
1: He and needed then,
0: this challenge, and then they came back, and there was a challenge on what he could do.
1: And, okay, but is it wait, a ch- challenge? No, go ahead.
0: Mike Tyson knocking people out? Yeah. You know what he stopped doing? He stopped training until a couple weeks before the fight to see if he could get in shape and knock somebody out. So the guy psychologist tells me, he goes, hey, he goes, out when you take the mound, He goes, and you get people on, he goes, I want you to see that as enjoyable. It's no longer a negative. So when your base is loaded, nobody out, you think to yourself, this is great. I'm gonna strike out the side, or I'm gonna get out of this. So you start playing a game in your head and you start enjoying. And it changed my mindset. huge. I was like, he's right, he's right. Billionaires, with a B, 75 percent have been bankrupt they take risks they love challenges they come back yeah and so there's this whether in any sports like you have to enjoy the challenge um, and if you run from challenges, you're never going to be the best athlete that, or person that you
1: can be. That's so true because the people I know that are stupid, wealthy, love doing stuff to almost see if they can get caught. Yes. It's almost like they want to drive fast to see if somebody, see if they'll get a ticket. Yeah. You know, or they want to sneak in somewhere yeah. just to see if somebody will pull them out. Yeah. You're right, challenge everything. But is, is that, this? I've noticed with a lot of uh, highly successful athletes that I've met that they, they, they can't stand to lose either. Also true. And I won't say
0: all of them can't stand to lose. They, they want to win. But it's this thirst of how can I be better? So if I lost, what do I need to learn from that? And it drives me more to want my dad. You know, again, Will, Kentucky. Shoots the shot. Never came off the ground because he was a part of that generation. He played college they didn't basketball. Jump. Well, you didn't ju- do a jump shot. But he was money every time. And so as a little kid, I never beat my dad at horse until one time I beat him. And it's one of the greatest accomplishments in my life. But when he beat me in horse, I wasn't like, we're not playing anymore. You know, I was like, again, again, you know, and, and, um, yeah. So it was, it's one of those where even if you lose, it's,
1: what did i learn but does that carry over with a lot a lot of professional athletes where they want to win in whatever they're doing i mean they want to win if they're playing you in poker they want to win if they're so i mean they're just that they're they're is there something about your makeup that that's different that you just have to win or you have to figure out how you can win or if you lose i got to play you again so i can beat you is it that prevalent or is it
0: yeah, no, I mean, there's nobody that enjoys, like, losing, the, you know, the great athletes or whatever. They're, they're winners. Yeah, and I, I think probably, um, you know, guy down the street, John Smoltz is the worst at that. Um, you know, if you go bowling, he's going to run by the house and get his personal bag and bowling <laughs> ball. If, you know, you go play ping pong, he's
1: like. He wants to know, win. Yeah. yeah, I mean,
0: so there's, there is, and everybody is like that to an extent. Some obsessive, some not. Some may be focused in one area. Yeah. Um, but. You know, if something's not my passion, I'm not like, oh, I got to be the best at this. If Sorry, could you say that it. again? Sorry.
1: But <laughs> huh? I said, say it again. Somebody's it again. listening. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: everybody's listening now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you just uh, you have that drive.
1: All right, tell me about Bobby Cox and Snicker and Leo Mazzoni and coaches like that. The Atlanta coaches, which we know. Yeah. What? Any great stories, anything? Uh, what What made those guys successful? Bobby was one of the best
0: at dealing with people, you know, and every coach had their own unique kind of style. And Bobby didn't, he wasn't a big talker. Remember the old EF Hutton commercial? Yeah. You know, when EF Hutton, people listen. So when he spoke, I mean, when he had a team meeting, it was very, very powerful because, you know, but he was kind of like your grandpa that cared about you a lot. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to perform because you knew he cared about you, and he would show that by when you failed, he'd give you the ball as soon as he could again to get your mind, so you get your confidence back up.
1: That was his thing, right? Rookie
0: got called up, put him in the game immediately. You know, Brian Snicker is very gracious in saying that he has learned a lot from Bobby. Brian Snicker's his own guy; he's not Bobby Cox. But the fact that he can be humble enough to say, "I learned this from Bobby," and this and dida, and you go out there, um, is really is really a great great quality. And Brian Snicker, I think, if I were to say, why is he so good? Um, it is because he cares about you so much and allows you to be yourself and creates an environment where you want to be at the field. There's a lot of guys that would have shut down Guillermo Heredia running onto the field with pink swords. And they would have said enough of that but he can handle Heredia and he can handle Freddie Freeman and he can handle Dansby and he can handle Ozzie, who's from a different country, a different place in the United States, a different personality, a different engine, and he knows how to push those buttons.
1: You like him? I do.
0: Really good? When Ronald Acuna Jr. gets hit and he's on the center of the field, Screaming at people, you know, and just and here you have this guy in his sixties ready to fight you physically because you hit one of his guys. Mm. Mm. All I need to know when he's giving his speeches afterwards and he's tearing up and you know how much he cares. It's great. I asked Brian Snicker, "Why are you such a good manager?" (laughs) That's a really (laughs) tough question. Why are you so great? (laughs) But I just said, you know. Guys love playing for you. They'll run through a wall for you. Far more important than great decisions. And I, against a certain amount of people on Twitter, feel like he makes great decisions. Because um, you can never, as a head coach, make a decision that everybody agrees with. it'd no. be like 55-45, you know, on the, what you do. And they were always one. after you made the decision. Yeah, after you made the decision, <laughs> I should have done this, I've done this, I've done You know, and I'm like, no, you really have not been in the trenches... <laughs> And don't know what you would do in that situation. And you don't know who's hurt. And you don't know who. So when you bring guys in from the bullpen, sometimes you don't know what you're getting. You're like, man, that makes no sense. But he believes in people. It's why you saw Luke Jackson out on the mound pitching against the Dodgers. Because he's like, no, nah, believe in you. Go get him. Struggles. Tyler Matzik comes in. Becomes a cult figure because he shuts the side down. And Wow. So when you see him believe in people, scream when one of his guys gets hit, but I ask him, why are you, why are you a good manager? Why are players want to run through a wall for you? He just said one thing. I really care about my players. And they know it. It's like a family. So not only did he bring some guys over that, you know, is why you're wearing pearls, but there was already a <laughs> – a situation where somebody could come over and even do that. Yeah. And even do that.
1: And allow them to do it. Yeah.
0: A lot of people be like, hey, you're wearing pearls? This is baseball. What, you know, you're a girl. Get out of here. And all of a sudden, like, you couldn't buy pearls in Atlanta. Literally. And then, you know, I feel like I'm pretty tough. I can bench <laughs> 225, and I'm wearing <laughs> pearls. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like, so the allowance of people to be themselves in a culture where you wanted to get to, the locker room. Instead mm-hmm. of, oh, I don't want to go into work today. You know, it's so miserable. Everybody's complaining. You know, there yeah. was there wasn't that culture there.
1: So, how right. much does the catcher have to do with the pitch versus what the pitcher wants to pitch? You know, they're out there doing that. So, how, what all those signs a mean? good, nothing. a good catcher
0: knows his guy, and that's so hard because. You'll have, you know, 12 guys, and guys come in, and this hitter, and the catcher's not going to know how you faced, you know, um, I that, don't know. That guy. Two holes two years ago, and then yeah. four years ago, and, you know, all this stuff. And Chipper had the best memory, the best recall of anybody that I played with. Like, he could tell me how I pitched him in AAA 10 years later. It was fascinating. Um, so, you know, a catcher, a good catcher, really knows that guy knows the hitter, knows how his stuff will play against that guy. But the best catchers just make suggestions. It's not about them. The next day in the paper, you're not going to see. He's saying,
1: this is what I think. And then you say, think, but you know, I'm not feeling it. I'm going with this.
0: Yeah. If you're, if you're a young pitcher, I'm not supposed to look at the camera. I'm going to break a rule and I'm going to do that. If you are a young pitcher, I would far rather you believe in your pitch and throw the wrong pitch throw the pitch that a catcher wants if you don't believe in it even if it's the right call because you won't execute it and there's something about faith behind a pitch when you let it go that gets guys out yeah there is something about belief and you can tell a pitcher that's confident goes at you believes in himself and that body language that mojo that energy that gets guys out and intimidates hitters as much as anything else. Where you get a problem is when a catcher has a big ego, they don't want to be shaken off and it's about them. You're never going to see losing catcher and, you know, never see Travis Darno 0-1. You're not going to see that, you know. Mm -hmm. You're going to see Mike Soroka, 0-1. So it's really, Mm -hmm. really important that the catcher, you know, allows the pitcher to throw what he believes in. And when you have two guys working together, you know, so I had a rule where I called the pitches with my mouth. So it didn't matter what he put down. I knew what I was going to throw, and that was a way to keep hitters from reading. Well, well how, how did you do that? Uh, yeah, yeah. How yeah, you, so if I just looked at you, that was a fastball, and then the catcher would either go in and out. And then if I had, if I did this, to I closed my mouth uh-huh. like I wasn't just still. If I closed my mouth, B was for breaking ball. So on righties, we'd start with slider, and then if I shook, go to curve. Or when I got late in my career, I could throw a slider to both sides, so he would go that route. And then if I ever stuck my tongue out like that, did you see real quick, if I did that, that was a change-up. And so then late in my career, I could throw my change-up to both sides, so then it came down to what side <laughs> do you want it on? <laughs> so not, I need to I be mean, looking would, for This it? is what's cool. This is where you get in your, your late 30s, and you're kind of like a, you know. you're Getting <laughs> creative. Well, and you're you're, you're more confident in who you are. You've yeah. been doing it for so long, and you know what somebody's going to do, and then you can give a sign to your fielders behind your back before you grab the ball of start to, I would point right, you know, hold closed fist, or I would point depending on, tell them which way to go. And then it's kind of like a symphony, man. It's just it's really cool, and you would have – that the infielder's starting to take a step this way because I was throwing a cutter into a lefty and if he hit it well, I was gonna pull it and my second baseman needed to be there. Now they do the shift. So there's ways of pitching with far inferior subpar stuff where you can be better because you do all of the little things better and you know the guys, you know yourself, you know your stuff, you know what plays, you know what guys on defense, You you wanna get it hit to. And so when a catcher's involved in that process, Man, it's like getting ready to do surgery. That's awesome. You're yeah. just talking about what you're going to do and the problems you could find while you're in there, and it's uh, it's really a beautiful. Is place. that going
1: on today, though?
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. We just don't know it. It is, but you have you have. So yes, but you have. A computer. It's easier today because you've got all these numbers. This guy hits this, and this. So they're putting
1: the switch on on anyway beforehand. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. they're they're gonna move and they're gonna know what. But are they
1: pitching to hit into the switch? Hopefully they are. But then you you know you
0: have guys, and this is like Luke Jackson. I'm a big Luke Jackson fan. Um, He's not that guy. He's not that guy. He's gonna throw his slider that falls off the table and goes straight down and he's gonna to try to throw a fastball for a strike somewhere. And there's a beauty in that because he knows himself. So when it's 3-2 and people are like, why doesn't Luke Jackson just throw a strike? It's because that's not his game. Like, throttling down and just throwing a strike on the outside corner is not his game. Mm-hmm. He's a, you know.
1: He's a power guy.
0: He's a power guy that's gonna let it eat every single pitch with his slider And he's one of the reasons the Braves won the World Series. But he knew himself. He knows his game versus somebody that's going to go, okay, Freed, slider up and in, keep him honest, change up away. Now I'm going to throw the curve up, fastball. He leaned. You know, he reads the hitters and starts doing that. Now I'm like, okay, not everybody can do that. If Luke Jackson tried to pitch like Max Freed, he'd fail. Mm. And if Mm. Max Freed tried to pitch like Luke Jackson, he'd fail. But because they know themselves and what get guys, what gets guys out for them, it works. That's great. So the moral of the story is stop hating on Luke Jackson. Stop hating on Luke Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> you love Luke Jackson. Uh, I do. He's another one of those guys that's the right guy in the clubhouse. Really? Good personality. Comes in on a skateboard. Yeah, born in Florida, but you really should be from California. That's hilarious. Yeah.
1: So what what did you think about them taking the All-Star game away from us here in Atlanta? Hmm.
0: May have been a blessing. Really? May, yeah, may have been a blessing. Um, certainly wasn't a blessing for a lot of businesses in Atlanta. I didn't agree with it. I had pictures of the All-Star Game signs on the polls that I wasn't allowed to tweet <laughs> or put up, and I'm like, oh! Um, I love people. I love Atlanta. I thought our fans have done a really good job of supporting the Braves, and I wanted other people to experience that. that. Yeah. And um, I thought the front office had done a really good job of putting together a stadium that Bill Palashie called the Sterile Shopping Mall, L.A. writer, even put down Waffle House. Do not come into our state and put down Waffle no, House.
2: No, no. So
0: when you started seeing stuff like that, um, you know, like, okay, little chip on our shoulder. You took the All-Star game from us. You're calling it a sterile shopping mall. Which, and my point is the execs had done a really good job of putting together an incredible stadium with a footprint where it was very fun to go to mm-hmm. before and after the game. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, our fans, again, responded and were fantastic. And, you know, you had guys in that game that I thought deserved on our Atlanta Braves team to show off what happened. So when it was taken because of political reasons, that was frustrating. Um, and I thought the Atlanta Braves did a very good job of saying we don't agree, but we, you know, we... We're rolling with it. We're, We don't have, you know, don't have a choice. So I think the way it played out later is like, you know, uh, in years past, I saw the Atlanta Braves kind of in the playoffs like, hey, the chop is racist. Don't do the chop. And so one of the players, the Cardinals, had Native American heritage and they kind of stopped. And they kind of like, you know, and I don't really want to get too political here, but I'm not like, you're a Democrat, I hate you. You're a Republican, you're great. Or you're a Republican, I hate you. All Democrats are the best. Like, we're all on the same team. And it's okay if you feel differently than me. Right. What's most important is that I care about you. Just like we talked about coaches who care about their players, mm-hmm. the number one most important thing. We're Americans. And it's okay to feel differently and it's okay if you don't like the chop, and it's okay if you do like the chop. The president of the Cherokee Nation, the largest Native American tribe that we have left, loves the chop.
1: And that, that's cool, that helps
0: us. And there's gonna be another tribe that doesn't like the chop, and so, In years past, they kind of stopped being themselves. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I do think brings us together is, hey, man, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican. We're both Braves fans. Let's go cheer for the Braves together. And politics have always been in sports. I get that. But sports always brings people who feel differently together and gives you common ground. So we're Braves fans. So Braves fans, 95% of them want to chop. And so I think you should be respectful, you know, to people who feel differently. You don't have to make them feel like you. But I thought they, this is my opinion, and I want, you know, please respect my opinion. And so when people come into the game and they turn the stadium lights off and everybody gets out their phone and starts chopping and the music's playing, something started by Deion Sanders from Florida State way back when in the 90s. I still get the chills no matter how many times I see it or hear it. And it's very intimidating for another player to come into that. Yeah. Good night. And I see people of all colors and races and you know. backgrounds
1: yeah. doing this. Yeah. And
0: I had a player who's almost should be a Hall of Famer, a really good friend of mine, teammate, say, I feel like it's honoring. And he goes, I've never seen this before, but I thought it was racial. And now now that I'm here, I see it totally differently. He goes, this is powerful, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, yeah. I go, yeah, I get it. And I think another thing the Atlanta Braves did was they actually gave back to the Native American cultures and the Cherokee Nation by providing sports equipment and money for their education in schools and i was like that's really cool and allowed them to practice some of their things you know some of their rituals in the stadium and do some of their dances and heritage and i was like that's really cool really? yeah. yeah man yeah, yeah. no i think cool. that i mean that for me is like most people want to like throw a punch and then run out and i'm like why well, have you given to what you're throwing a punch towards exactly. is it that big a deal exactly. to you that you're willing to take out of your pocket and give. And I thought the Atlanta Braves did a good job of that. And after we lost the all-star game, you got to be careful, Steve, when you ask me a question, because I may just go.
1: (laughs) Way back when,
0: when you asked me about losing the all-star game, I thought the Atlanta Braves were like, you know, we kept trying to please people and please people. And the lesson in the story is you can't really please everyone. Be yourself. You know, some people will say he's making a mockery of baseball. He's come up to the plate with pearls. Well, you have your opinion and that's okay, but. Jack Peterson's going to walk up to the plate with pearls and be himself. And I thought the Atlanta Braves said, you know, we're not going to stop doing the chop. It's probably going to offend some people. And so they turned up the music in the playoffs, and it made a difference.
1: Home field advantage.
0: That's my opinion. I mean, no ill will towards anybody, and I Mm -hmm. can see. And here's another thing. I may change my mind (laughs) in two or three or four or five years from now. Who knows? But – And I think that's another good, you know, aspect of being a leader is changing your mind. And I saw people saying, hey, baseball does need to be more fun and they do need to bat flip a little bit every now and then, if that's that person. And if there's somebody that is a Nick Marcakis who's never going to flip his bat like that, that's okay. Be Nick Marcakis and celebrate his difference and say, I want Nick Marcakis to be himself. And he was. So... You know, end of the story, I thought at the end of the year, the Braves were themselves. And they stopped trying to please every single person. And uh, my message to America, we're all on the same team.
1: Beautiful. Bam. And it's okay to feel differently. Yeah. I love it. Thank you for that. Yeah. I promise All right, what else, Connor, anything else? Man. Uh, What are we out on time? What does the manager actually say when he comes to the mound? We had a bit of a break that I didn't stop recording in, but we are at an hour and a half. We are? We're having fun, aren't we?
2: Yeah, there's probably about a 20-minute break in the middle, so I'd say we're well over an hour for sure.
1: That's fine. Uh, What have I not asked you? What's something we need to talk about?
2: Anything you think of? That we need to talk about? Yeah. Anything from a business standpoint? I mean, unless you want to talk about the ministry. Mm. Sure we do. It's up to you guys, man. Well, okay. A couple big themes going on here. Yeah. We want to. Mm -hmm. Uh... Uh, I didn't
0: come here for that You know what I'm saying but, uh, Of course but no, but this we, is yeah, cool yeah, But, but you be the the believe
2: problem. in this And this is passion yeah. for you. Be- belief Is something we've talked about And then Care for other people Is another thing we've talked about mm-hmm. And that, those me- More mental I believe in you And you getting You know right. um, Getting confidence from that That's been a huge theme And then the other big theme was um, Care Brian Snicker telling people He cares for them And Bobby Cox telling people He cares for them yeah. So those have been the big themes and so the ministry I feel like plays really well into both those things. So we'll go this There's way. So
1: yeah. So Paul, what are you doing other than the baseball thing? You got a passion, a hobby, you've got nonprofit. What- I do.
0: So uh the Birdhouse Ministries is a 501c3 that we started years ago. I wrote a book called Free Bird and I took you know that money and we started a nonprofit and you know it was to to help out kids and it was to help out certain uh, you know Christian charities help out schools you know it's kind of those were the focus yeah and um, even if it was like a, a small sports team it was I could do something with that so it had these labels Then recently we've kind of we've started doing equine therapy which is really cool um, my brother had two horses in Louisville, my, uh, my oldest brother, and uh, he's United States Marine. And he passed away in 2001. So I'll just say he is a Marine because once Marine, always a Marine. And he initiated me, uh, took me camping, fishing, taught me how to pitch a tent, all that good stuff. Yeah. And um, so I grew up riding horses with him. And then my dad, who was my best and favorite catcher of all time, took me to Churchill Downs, taught me how to gamble. You know, so I'm like, $2 on Old Blue. You know, I'm like, fourth grade, you know, heart rates through the roof because you could win two fifty. dollars 50 And, um, you know, so those are, so I've always been very fond of horses and just, you know, growing up in Kentucky as well, one of the things that we are known for. So it's really cool now that organically we've had a ministry that we started that is, uh, you know, um, dedicated to helping people in trauma through equine therapy. And how that works is, When you get within five feet of a horse, your heart rate lowers. Hmm. And you're able to process things from a more relaxed issue uh, as a counselor stands there with you. And then we believe that trauma is healed through relationship. And a lot of times when you're damaged, you don't really trust and you'll struggle in relationships and we need each other. Yeah. You, You feed a baby you don't touch them, love, talk to that baby, the baby will die. And we need each other. Mm-hmm. And so, when you're damaged from relationships, you're going to have trouble healing. And so, what we believe is that we teach relationship skills, and you start to have connection with this horse. You start to have relationship with this horse. And that helps you in your other skills in life with people, therefore, helping you heal the trauma. And so I have experienced it in my life. I thought we were helping other people, and actually the horses are there for me, too. So I've got some healing in certain areas. I would mentioned I lost my brother and never really grieved his death, and, you know, through a horse named Max, who's my guy, he's the biggest horse in Georgia, 19 hands, big on dude, you know, through... Uh, doing some rhythmic riding and things on him and really uh, been able to grieve the loss of my brother better. So it's uh, it's been really powerful. It's been really fun. Is it riding
1: the horse that helps you? So it's
0: connection with the horse first, which happens on the ground. It's called groundwork. And so you start to learn these skills. One of the skills is not every person or horse can like you. A little bit what we talked about earlier about yeah. being yourself and you can't please everybody. One of the things you learn. So this one, uh, you know, horse came over to a girl and the girl's like, "You're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. I love you, I love you, I love you. You're beautiful, you're beautiful." And the horse walked away to the other <laughs> side of the arena and she didn't know why. And so the first lesson why. she had to learn was, yeah, uh, you don't have to manipulate people and not every person or not every horse can like you. And so she. Uh, started talking you know, to the therapist and then she started crying and getting some stuff out and feeling like she wasn't good enough and why this and that. And so we started talking about, hey, it's okay if somebody doesn't like you. Doesn't. That's wow. that's, that's actually what's going to happen in life and it's healthy that you can realize your worth is not dependent on someone else's opinion of you. And mm-hmm. She's crying and all this and, The therapist says, now look to your right. And she turned to her right, and that horse was sitting right off her shoulder. Same horse. Same horse. Therapist goes, what looks like? You got a new buddy. you You got a new friend. And being authentic and sharing a little bit about yourself and how you feel actually creates connection. That's crazy. So if you just told me what to do, and you just told me, but like, That would be, but I don't really know Steve. But if you tell me a little bit about you, about how you feel and how you felt when this guy was born and what you like to do, where you went on the motorcycle and that feeling you got when you came over the mountains in Colorado and all this, and I'm like, now I know a little bit more of Steve. He's being vulnerable. I feel connected. And then when you share certain things that you've struggled with, that's okay, too.
1: Mm, that's where to it gets be, really good.
0: Yeah, to be authentic and to be vulnerable. You start to feel connected. So these are some of the principles that you learn with these animals, and then you can go take them out into the real world, real world and you start to get healing and know it's okay to not be okay. We're all messed up. And um, yeah. So how do people, if they want to learn more about it or... Uh, Birdhouse, B-Y-R-D, H-O-U-S-E, ministries, I-E-S, dot com. Alpharetta,
1: Milton. Milton.
0: And, uh, yeah, we've got a round pen. We've got a cabin in the woods. We've got two barns, and we've got an arena. And then you can graduate up to getting on the back of a horse and do some trail riding and things like that. Yeah. That's also fun, too. I love it. Yeah. It's awesome.
1: Hey, guys, so uh, thank you for being on this beach I talk. i got to stop my man right here. <laughs> he was gonna Turn it over us. to an expert. He was going to take
0: us out, and I'm used to taking us out at Valley Sports. But sometimes when you get a rookie close by, you don't tell them, and then you let them take us back, and that's what's happening here. Connor Beecham's going to take us out. You want me to do it? You want me to do the it? best exit that you got.
2: Best exit I got. Guys, thanks for listening this week. Paul, thank you for coming by. This has been a fantastic, fantastic podcast. Learned so much hanging out with you. So I really enjoyed you coming by, man. Um, But yeah, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you all next time.